All right, yeah, let's get started. Reimagining the world anew. I can't help but feel like we are living in one of those moments. Hello, everyone. I'm Varun Soni, and I'm the Dean of Religious and Spiritual Life at the University of Southern California. This is More Than a Game, a podcast where we explore the human experience through the lens of sports and search for spiritual wisdom to help us make sense of the time we're living in. Together, we'll ask, what can we learn from the religion of sports to help guide us through this challenging moment? Today's episode, Hope. In order to explore this topic, I called up my dear friend, Reza Aslan, one of the most important and innovative scholars of religion in the world today. I've known Reza for 20 years now, as we first met in graduate school, and our lives and careers have intersected in all sorts of interesting ways since then. And today we're both parents, both podcast hosts, and we're both professors of comparative religion. Still, Reza and I have both found a lot of hope in our lives through sports, especially as diehard, long-suffering, eternally optimistic fans of two of the worst franchises in American sports. You see, I'm a Clippers fan and Reza is a Raiders fan. So how can we translate our hope in our cursed franchises into hope for what feels like a cursed time? And so Reza, thank you for joining me today. <laughs> Thanks, Varun. You know, it's funny, this is how much of a, of a diehard Raiders fan I am, is that I can't deny the facts of what you're saying about how badly my team sucks. And yet, Hearing someone else say that it sucks, like it's that moment, like when someone says that your your sister is ugly, you're like, okay, that's it, let's fight. <laughs> Only I can say that. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So I thought you'd be the the perfect person actually to talk to about this because at various times throughout our franchise histories, our beloved teams have been called the worst teams in all of sports, and for good reason. Yeah. The Clippers have never even made the Western Conference Finals. I think the Raiders haven't won a Super Bowl in almost 40 years. And and every year, somehow, every year before the season begins, if you ask either of us about the fortunes of our team, we'll confidently tell you that this is our year. This is the year it changes. This is the year we win it all. <laughs> this is the year we've been waiting for our whole lives. And so my question to you is, is it possible to translate that hope or might you say blind faith that we feel each season for our respective teams, even if they're doomed to failure, into this present moment, which also feels like a doomed moment? Like, what are the spiritual lessons about hope that we can take from our fandom uh, that will allow us to endure throughout the global pandemic? What do you think? Well, in fact, I think I think it begins not so much with the beginning of every season, but at the end of every season, because... Mm. I know like you, at the end of every season, I say to myself, that's it. I've had it. No more. I'm tired of constantly having my hopes dashed. I'm, I'm tired of, of ending every season with frustration. You know, I just, I hate myself by the time the season is over. And I swear that I'm never going to uh, put myself in this position again. And then sometime around draft period, I'm like, okay, I think this is the year. I think this could be it for us. I think this <laughs> might be it. And maybe there's something instructive there, right? Because the truth is that nobody wants to feel like there is no light at the end of the tunnel. Nobody wants to be in a situation in any part of their lives, but you know, certainly with regard to sports or anything like that, to feel like 
that all this effort and time and energy and love and attention and affection that you have poured into something, uh, whether it's a team or a hobby or anything else, uh, has all been for naught, that it's all been a just complete waste of time. And I think we as human beings are just primed to to sort of always think that maybe there's something beyond that hill. Maybe there's something beyond the next hill. Uh, maybe this time it will be different. Now, in my case, I'm certain this time it will be different. I know that we're going to win uh, the Super Bowl this year. But that's over and beyond that. I, I think that what sports does is it becomes, in so many ways, but certainly in this way, a kind of mirror for the way that we think about ourselves and our role in an indeterminate world. Yeah, I, I love that. I think that's true. Uh, but but if we have this need for hope, then why don't you just root for the Patriots? Why don't I just root for, you know, the the Lakers uh, in a in a Laker town? Being a Clippers fan for thirty years has been brutal. Like, what is it about? Is there something about rooting for an underdog? Or uh, I, I was thinking about this and. And for me, I don't know if this is the way it is for you, but as an immigrant to the United States, when I became a Clippers fan, I felt like I had an American vocabulary and tribe suddenly. I felt like I belonged, even though the Clippers never kind of belonged within the NBA landscape. I felt like I I belonged, that I could participate in something that looked a lot different than my experiences at home in a way that allowed me to feel American for the first time. And maybe there are other emotional ties to our franchises that keep us coming back for more. Because my brother, for example, like he would root for any team that would win. Like if the Bulls won, he was a Bulls fan. If the Lakers won, he was a Lakers fan, you know. And I, you know, he always got to celebrate. I never got to celebrate. (laughs) But I took a lot of pride in the fact that I wasn't a bandwagon fan, that I, I, I was in the trenches, you know, during the worst of times. Well, first of all, let me begin by saying I would rather have my nuts stuck in a vice than root for the Patriots. Okay? How dare you even bring that up as a as a possibility. Okay? <laughs> and me too with the Lakers. I, I grew up I grew up I grew up a Celtics fan in Boston during the bird magic heyday. Yeah. So Exactly. Exactly. Number one. And number two, it, it is interesting to me how closely our experience with our teams does track. I came to the US uh, very early in the 1980s, um, you know, totally and completely lost as a, as a person, as a kid. I happened to be here at a time of profound anti-Iranian sentiment because of the hostage crisis that was going on. Um, you know, I was constantly sort of made to feel as though I didn't belong there, that my skin color, my funny name, my, my uh, pronunciation of, of English words, my culture, my religion, that all of those things were other, that I wasn't American. And it was around this time, the early 80s, when the Raiders were at their absolute height. You know, this was the era um, of Plunkett and Marcus Allen, uh, you know, all sort of these great Hall of Fame players. And the Raiders, the black and, and silver, uh, the bruisers, you know, who would cheat during games, who would end up having something like 37, 38 penalties and yet still manage to, to win a game. They were winning Super Bowls at that time. I mean, for me, the instant connection that I had with that team was visceral. I, I didn't even really know what football was 
when I had decided to be a Raider fan. I mean, I people ask me, you know, if I'm a football fan, and I am not a football fan. I literally watch no other game in a week except the Raider game. I don't watch anyone else's games. I don't even watch games in my own division. I mean, I have four kids, so I don't have time for that. I have time for one game a week, and that game is going to be the Raiders game. So I'm a Raiders fan, much more so than I'm even a football fan. And I think that there is something that's, that's deeply emotional about that connection. And certainly over the last, you know, 20 something, 30 something years in which the Raiders have just been God awful, um, that connection hasn't been severed. You know, my wife, who's not a sports fan of any kind, um, tells me all the time, look, if it makes you so miserable, and it does, then why not stop watching? Why not root for somebody else? (laughs) And I don't even know how to respond to that question because... Uh, you know, the, the question itself makes no sense. I couldn't root for anyone else any more than I can get rid of my, my skin color or, or my identity or my culture or my heritage. It's, it's part of how I define myself, which again goes to this larger point of your pod and, you know, so many of the conversations that you and I have had late at night, uh, usually under the influence of one thing or another. Yeah, we're under the intoxication of our sports teams. Yes, exactly, exactly. Uh, In which we really begin to philosophize what this thing called religion actually is. I mean, it's really funny that you and I uh, are scholars in a field that has no universally recognized definition. I mean, that's insane. It, it's not like people. It's not like people disagree what biology is. Yeah, <laughs> you know, right. or people people don't have a consensus on what is calculus. Yeah, I mean, nobody can say what religion actually is, and so each one of us is sort of tasked with this responsibility to come up with definitions on our own, which is why you know, how we think about religion, certainly what religion does to a person can so easily be expanded to so many different fields, but most especially sports. And so maybe the hope, the the useless hope that you and I have <laughs> in our teams, the loyalty that we feel to it, the profound sense of identification that comes from it, can best be understood in the same way that someone raises their hand and says, I'm a Christian. Do you go to church on Sundays? No. Do you read the Bible regularly? No. Do you actually follow all the precepts, you know, that that Jesus commanded? No. Then why do you call yourself a Christian? Because it's how I see myself. Yeah. It's part of my culture. It's part of just who I am. I can't stop right. being this thing any more than I can stop being myself. Yeah, I, I like I love the way you're juxtaposing uh, our fandom to our faith in some ways. The idea that uh, you know when you look into a religious text or when you read religious scripture, the way you interpret that text or scripture tells you more about yourself than it does about that text or scripture. In the same way that the way you imagine your fandom might tell you more about who you are than it does tell you about your team. Mm-hmm. You know, we've known each other for a long time, Reza, and one of the things that I think drew us together when we met all those years ago in divinity school was our shared love for Joseph Campbell, the great scholar of 
mythology. And I think we both believe that we write the stories of our life and we live the mythologies that end up defining our lives, that when we talk about mythology, we're also talking about ourselves. And sports, of course, is replete with compelling narratives and you know epic mythologies. And that's why I think sports is so compelling for us as human beings, uh, because uh, sports is telling a story in the same way that we're telling a story. Um, how do we tell a story? You're a, you're a writer, you're a storyteller. Um, how do we tell a story about hope right now when so much of our experience is consuming the stories of, of fear? I mean, the narrative out there is one of anxiety. It's one of fear. Um, how, do we, how do we write our own stories of hope in this moment? I think what Joseph Campbell understood was that no matter how grand the mythology is, it's fundamentally about an individual, the hero, an individual on a journey, confronting challenges, making decisions, um, figuring out who he or she is, you know, as, uh, as the journey continues. And I think so often when we are confronted with tragedies like the pandemic that we're experiencing now, we get lost in the macro of it all, the enormous numbers of deaths, the devastation that it is causing um, in the economy, the unprecedented percentages of Americans who are out of work and unemployed. But those things don't mean anything to us. It's really hard to empathize with uh, that kind of macro level thinking. The only way that we can truly understand the, the meaning of the moment in which we are in is to narrow it down to a single individual struggling to make sense of it all, being challenged in ways that they could have never imagined. That's what I try to do in all of my work. Whenever I'm writing about any kind of topic or any subject, no matter how grand, I always try to narrow it down to the viewpoint of a particular individual in a particular moment in time, making real-time decisions to the best of their ability, decisions that will, whether they are aware of it or not, have global repercussions and ripples throughout history. So you've studied the great religious texts of the world. You've encountered all these stories uh, about natural disasters and global crises. Yeah. From the perspective of the individuals who lived and experienced those stories in the scriptures, what did they learn and what are we supposed to learn during this moment? Well, it's interesting that you say that because um, I'll just tell you a story from our own uh, family's experience. So during Passover, um, you know, when we were having our Shabbat dinner, we um, really worked hard to connect the story of Passover to the pandemic that we were experiencing now. The idea that a plague was passing by, that what we needed to do was shelter in place and and have hope that we would survive, that we would um, emerge from this moment, this tragic experience, um, better and stronger and alive and, and with a renewed sense of who we are. And, you know, we've had Passover dinners at our house before with our kids, but I think this was the first time that it truly made sense to them because they were able to connect their experience to the experience 
of the Israelites thousands of years ago. And you're right. There are so many examples in the world's scriptures of individuals confronted with impossible situations, but who, because they maintained hope, right? And hope is just another word for faith. Because they maintained hope, they were able to not just survive, but thrive. And I think that's the message that I try the hardest to convey to my children. Um, And, you know, for them, I think hearing these kinds of stories, it's a it's a very immediate connection that they can build. And you're right, when you're suffering through a plague, I mean, what's more biblical than that? That's right. It feels like we're, this is our biblical moment here. And in many ways, it, it also feels like this is a dress rehearsal for things to come. You know, the kinds of disruption, the inequality that we've seen, the challenges with healthcare, these are going to be amplified for our children uh, because of catastrophic climate change. And in some ways, they're getting a glimpse of a future that looks very different than our past did. Absolutely. And so as you're thinking about your role as a parent, you're talking about these issues with your with your kids, um, and yet you also are aware of a future that is going to present similar, if not even more significant challenges for them. How does that shape your conception of hope? We were actually talking about this very same topic not too long ago. As you know, sort of one of the the prevailing theories about um, evolution is that uh, adaptions don't happen slowly over long periods of time, that they actually happen as the result of sudden and unexpected mutations um, that then completely change the, the course of a particular species evolution forevermore. And I feel like that that's how society works too, that the fundamental changes that that society and civilization have gone through throughout history have been less the result of long, steady, gradual change and more the result of moments of profound and sudden change that transform society forever, that 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 essentially make us rethink everything that we knew before and force us to adjust to a a new world. And I can't help but feel like we are living in one of those moments. We need to come out of this experience um, with some new ideas about how we're going to live from now on, how we're going to associate with each other, what we're going to spend our time on, how we're going to function as individuals and as a collective. Otherwise, what was the point of all this? Yeah. You know, I mean, I feel like we've got we've got to have hope that all of this was for something, that that this this represents a... A, a mutation, a giant leap in the evolution of our society, um, one that's going to result in a better world, a world that we can be more adapted right. to. Yeah, I, I, I talk with my students a lot about this, not about 
trying to get back to the world that once was, but reimagining the world anew, right? We've seen all sorts of things come out of this with inequality and healthcare disparities that shouldn't ever go back to the way they were. And so I think for young people who are really struggling about graduating into a, a, a very difficult economy or the disrupted career paths, um, instead of sort of trying to return back to the way things were, they actually have an unprecedented opportunity to reimagine and repair a world anew. And um, and that's where we find hope and in that repairing, in that reimagining, in that renewal. Absolutely. Well, this conversation has given me hope. Reza, I'm so grateful to you for spending time with us today. And uh, I cannot wait. I cannot wait until we get to hang out together with our kids again, hopefully soon. Me too. Me too, man. Thank you, Reza. Go Raiders. Go Clippers. <laughs> this is our year. This is our year. Let's continue exploring the human experience through the lens of sports together. Subscribe to More Than a Game on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This show comes from Religion of Sports. Our theme music was composed by Michael Kramer. Alex Claiborne is our producer. Jessica Popovac edits the show. Our executive producers are Amith Sankaran, Gotham Chopra, and Adam Schlossman. And I'm your host, Varun Soni. Thanks for listening.